Well, over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture, Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. They blaspheme his name. You know, when we as believers are confronted with passages like this, and there are several in Scripture, they can be, for us, difficult. It can be hard to accept the reality at face value of what actually is being conveyed. In fact, I would argue for some, if not many believers, it's hard to believe. How is this possible? How could anybody be in true relationship with the Messiah, Yeshua, tasted the powers of the age to come, have that precious anointing upon them, and find out that they're cast away, that they're severed? That's hard to take in. That's hard to believe. And you know what we do in response to this? Some of us fall into the trap, you end up rewriting the scripture. You end up reinterpreting it. You end up diminishing it because it's too real. It's too up close. It's too personal. This hits close to home. This hits hard. We're talking about salvation. See, as passages like this, the devil does not want you to possess. He does not want you to have it. He will wrap you in a cocoon of delusion and lies to prevent that godly sorrow, that conviction, to just rip into your heart and totally transform you where you have this beautiful renewing of a mind and you have perfect clarity and you have light. It's been cast into this darkness. I want to open up today with introducing you to Mr. Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill, And I've talked about him many times, so some of you are familiar. If you're not familiar with Leonard Ravenhill, he's one of the most prolific evangelists of all time. Definitely in our generation, he died in the 80s sometime. Prolific. This man was anointed. He was articulate. And he took the church to task. One of the primary things that he was focused on and that pained him That's why revival was not breaking out. He was a revivalist. He was focused on it. He saw the power of it. He studied revivals. The revival, the great revival that happened in Britain. The second great revival that happened in America. That swept, that actually influenced the entire world. And he studied these things and he he studied how they were so successful Why did the Spirit of God and the presence of God come down in such power? And all these people experience it. And he's looking at the men at the helm and what they did. And he was looking at the church in his era, in our age. Why why isn't the church experiencing what has happened in this country that's happened in other parts of the world? It's amazing. He draws this out. And he says this commentary is in regard to Charles Finney, who is, who is known as responsible, the man that the Lord used for the great awakening here in America. Listen to what he says. This is amazing. Finney preached 28 nights in a row and never made an altar call. Think about that statement for a second. 
He didn't preach God's love. He preached the wrath of God. He didn't say you're a nice little person. God loves you, but he hates your sin. He said God is angry with the wicked every day. Goes on. He didn't preach God's love. He preached God's wrath. He didn't preach heaven. He preached hell. He didn't preach grace. He preached law. Night after night, he pummeled those people and they listened until they were in a state of almost mental exhaustion. And finally, the fire of God would break out. That's, Ravenhill studied these men where the Holy Spirit would come down in fire and in power and there was radical transformation. And he saw a complete difference in his time and what has happened to the church. And if he were alive today, who knows what he would say? Because this is not the formula. We're getting accustomed. We want to make people feel comfortable. But the problem is it's not comfortable with the spirit of God, with holiness and righteousness. It's comfortable with the flesh. It's that same deception that these people are being talked about in Hebrews 6 are possessing. See, they think they're saved. They're getting in. They don't know they are enemies of God. That is crazy. That, that thought is crazy to me. Ravenhill says this, there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. This is where the transformation comes. This is where the holy dagger gets into your heart and rips out that garbage that the enemy has sown. It's what we need. So when we look at this passage, when we, we, when we, when we look at Hebrews 6, 4, this is the beauty of the passage. Let it have its work. Don't ignore it. Say, I'm not going to think about it very much because this is the natural response of your flesh. I don't want to consider this because it gets too real. Let it seep into the innermost being of your mind and the Holy Spirit, the word of God will do the work. Let it happen. With that said, I want to continue our quest today to unpeel layers of understanding. The passage is so important. I've got to deal with this one more week. And the way I want to do this is I want to take you to 1 John. And I want to preface before we go here, 1 John is, is such, a, such a cool epistle in its own right. It's written with a beautiful simplicity, absolute beautiful simplicity. That is not the case with other books that we find in the New Testament, written at this childlike level talking about the, 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 the basics, the core issues in such a simple way, talking about love, the love of God, and the love for our fellow man, which Yeshua says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, this is an epistle you could sit down with your child, and there's no question he will understand everything. She would understand. It's beautiful simplicity. But you go to other books, what does Peter say of Paul's epistles? The things that he writes, some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. See, when Paul writes, understand something, Paul does write at a very lofty level. You know, the grammarians will tell you he, he may use crude Greek, but make no mistake, this man is at the top. He speaks at a very, very lofty level. Well, John's epistle, his little epistle, there's this beautiful simplicity to it. It's just incredible until you get to the end. And as you get to the end of the, of the epistle, 
There's a particular passage that has stirred unbelievable amounts of discussion and debate on this one thing. And this is the passage we're going to go to. And just as a side note, it's just kind of a bonus. I've had so many people ask me about this passage over the years. What is he saying here? I don't know what to do with this. We're going to answer that. We're going to get our answer. But ultimately, what we're looking to do is understand Hebrews 6 better. To understand the character of these men. To understand who they are. Why they fell. And why they can't come back. So with that said, let's break into this. 1 John 5.14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, the Lord. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. Okay, so right off the bat, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with prayer. This is all about prayer. But not just prayer, the key to successful prayer. How many of you want to pray and you want your prayers answered? The way to do that, John tells you how to do that. Ask according to his will. Now you think about that for a second because Yeshua, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, and we quote it every Shabbat, he quotes to them, he tells them how to pray. It's the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? The first thing Yeshua teaches in praying to his disciples, to the apostles, is to pray for his will, to pray according to his will. Yeshua set his apostles up to have their prayers answered, to have powerful prayers, successful prayers. Okay, so here we have this beautiful, uh, this formula, if you will, to successful prayer. If we pray according to his will, then we know that he hears us. And if we know that the Lord hears us, this is gonna be even more germane as we continue. If we know that he hears us, we know we have the petitions we have asked of him. When you have the ear of the Lord. That said, let's move on. Verse 16, this is, this is what we read. That's actually verse 16, that says 15. It's 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Interesting. So we're not just talking, John is not just concerned about prayer. A specific kind of prayer, it's called intercessory prayer. Where an intercessor comes on a righteous man or woman, they come on the scene because he says he will ask. He sees his brother sinning a sin. We have righteous men and women coming to, to dropping to their knees and praying for this person over here. And it's a specific type of group of people that are getting prayed for. Where intercession is happening, pay close attention. It's specifically dealing with those who commit sin not leading to death. You need to have this. This is imperative. Because that's one group. He goes on to mention the other group. There is sin leading to death. And I do not say that we should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. What do you do with this? What do you do? How, how, what are, how are we supposed to understand this? The first thing to recognize here is there are two camps that are explicitly being discussed. We have one camp 
who commits sin not leading to death, there is sin. But another camp that there is sin leading to death. Let's first talk about what John is not saying. Okay? When John says there is some who commit sin that lead to death and some that commit sin that do not lead to death, is John saying that there are some who commit sin that lead to death? There's some sin that leads to death, but there's some sins that lead to life. Now, if you at all have been involved in the study of the word, you know John is not saying there are some sins that lead to life. And I need to preface this before we continue because of past discussions that I've had. All right? No sin leads to life. The wages of sin is death. You have to understand that. So what it tells you is there's just a lot more going on here. It's forcing your attention for you to investigate, to dig into. What does he mean? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, here's the thing. Look at what's in blue here. Or beginning with red. There is sin leading to death. I do not say we should pray about that. This is scary. And actually, in the Greek, when you look at this in the Greek, and you look, I, I, I do not say we should pray about that. It's actually a kainos, or a kainase in the afflicted. And what it means is that one. Do you understand what's just happening here? He's saying, intercede on behalf of one group, and do not intercede on behalf of another group. Now you're thinking, you're like, wait, wait a second, Daniel. Christians, we're, we're Christians. We're to pray for everyone. This is, this is what's so destabilizing about this passage. Don't blow it by. Pay attention. One group is supposed to be interceded for. Another group is not. Oh my goodness. Could we possibly be reading this right? Well, here's the key. And as I said before, you look at this in blue. We're not to pray for that one, for the one who is sinning a sin leading to death. Now, to peel back this at a deeper level, I want to take you to the prophets because what you need to understand is what John has said here, it's not of his own opinion. He's not just coming out with some new theology. He's taking this from the prophets. I want to read to you Jeremiah 7.16, and this passage in 1 John is going to resonate with you of understanding how some are getting interceded for and some are not, and why, and then it will tie into these people that we're reading about in Hebrews 6. Jeremiah 7.16 says, Therefore, do not pray for this people. This is the Lord commanding Jeremiah, his servant, to not pray, not for the world, not for the pagans. He's commanding them, do not pray for his people. We are dealing with the Jewish people. We are dealing with Israel. Can you wrap your head around that? That's the opposite of everything we know to be Christian. The Lord God is commanding, don't pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me. Sound familiar? We just talked about in 1 John, it was all about intercessory prayer. And here God is commanding Jeremiah, don't you dare intercede on their behalf. Why? I will not hear. I will not hear you, Jeremiah, when you lift up that cry. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Yehuda and in the streets of Yerushalayim? See, they're sinning. Oh, and what kind of sin? A sin that leads to death. The very sin that John is talking about, 
I do not say we should pray about that or about that one. No, 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 no. This is what's so terrifying about this. And in case Jeremiah forgot, the Lord would not let him. A couple chapters further, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. I will not hear them. I want to stop there. Because just before, when we just read in the last passage, in Jeremiah 7, he said, I will not hear you, Jeremiah. And just for clarity, the Lord is very specific. I will not hear them. He's not going to hear them because they're going to, what are they going to do? They're going to be praying to him. I will not hear them in time, in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. They cry out to me in their trouble. They are in trouble. They're crying out to the Lord and he is not going to hear them. What is that? That is a death sentence. If God will not hear you, it's over for you. There is no hope for you if God's not going to hear you. You know, there's a, there's a proverb, uh, Proverbs 25, 19. And, and, and it, said, it says, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. In other words, it's painfully foolish for you to be confident when you are unfaithful. For you to be confident to think there's going to be hope and a rescuer to come and deliver you, that's painfully foolish. I want you to think about that, because when do we want help more than any time? It's in the time of our trouble. When someone would come and help us, and nobody greater than the Lord himself when you call upon him. And I think of the believers that are mentioned in Matthew 7. They are confident. They are getting into the kingdom of God and they're stupefied when he says, I never knew you. That makes no sense to them. They had full confidence they were getting in. And guess what? Confidence in an unfaithful man in the time of trouble is pure foolishness. Painfully foolish. Jumping ahead, just in case Jeremiah, again, forgot. Chapter 14, verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. Over and over. These are God's people. Now keep in mind, he delivered them. He gave them mercy. He gave them grace. And because he gave them mercy and grace, he brought them in. He fulfilled the promise that he, he professed to Abraham. Bringing them into the land. He blessed them. And these ones whom he blessed, whom he loved, whom he showed mercy, now he's saying, do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. These people, are, they're fasting. They want an answer from the Lord. They want a response. They want help from the Lord. They're sacrificing. They're going to the temple. And the Lord will not hear them. This is what's so scary to me. Because how many Christians do we have, as I mentioned last week, is they go week after week and they offer their sacrifices of praise. They are confident that they are saved. That they are not going to see judgment not recognizing God has cut them off. He does not hear them. Now the question is, what are they doing that is so bad? What are they doing? For the, They were God's people. How could this happen? Well, First John, he, he already told us they're sinning 
a sin that leads to death. But then you say, what does that mean? What does it mean to sin a sin that leads to death? Fortunately, the prophet answers this. As we go into Jeremiah, let me take you to chapter 8. This is what we read. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Does that sound familiar? It is impossible for those who are once in line if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. The same same thing. Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Verse 5. Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. Perpetual. Do you understand what is happening to these men who is John saying we are not to pray for them? These men that are being, that are, are being articulated in Hebrews 6, that they have fallen away and there's no way to renew them again to repentance? What is the problem? What is the issue right there? Perpetual backsliding. They're not turning. This is the state that they're in. And what does it say? They hold fast to deceit. See, they love the lie. They are eating lies rather than eating the truth of the word. This is the, this is the reality. They refuse to return. They will not do it. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as a horse rushes into battle. And again, do not forget, what did we read last week? You want to keep the context here. Here we are in Jeremiah 8. We read Jeremiah 7 last week. His people were going to the temple. They were offering sacrifices, but what did they say? You want to know the delusion? They said, we are safe to do all these abominations. God will not judge us. God set us free. He gave us mercy. He set us free. It's okay. These things, we will not be judged for these things. It will not happen. This is the context. This is where his people are. They're sacrificing. They're fasting. But God will not hear because they will not repent. They will not acknowledge truth. So when we look at this this passage here in Hebrews 6, 4, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people that refuse, the exact same people that are being discussed in Jeremiah. They refuse to turn. They refuse to repent. They're in a perpetual backsliding. They love their sin more than they love truth. See, they, they love their idols The idols, all those little idols that they set up in their heart, the covetousness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Yeah, everything they set up in their heart, they love that more than the Lord. They'd rather have pleasure than righteousness. They want the wide path. They want it easy. We want it comfortable. I just want to be comfortable. I don't want the word affecting me to the point where I got to change my life and my surroundings. It can't affect my work. can't affect my personal life. I mean, Nobody wants to change. Nobody wants that impact. Nobody wants to be radically saved anymore. I want to take you to Romans chapter 1. Verse 24, Paul speaks into this. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you want to know the issue 
with these men? What has happened to these men who have fallen away? They cannot be renewed. What have they done? They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They had the most precious thing that we, we talk about. And Yeshua says, oh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like this and it's like that. And one of the things that he says, it's, it's like a precious pearl. That when, when, when man finds it, he goes and sells everything he has to obtain it. The kingdom of heaven is like that treasure. You sell everything, you give up everything. And here, the issue with these men that are being mentioned in, 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 in Hebrews and 1 John, that's being mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, that wicked generation... This is what they did. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What does Proverbs 23, 23 say? It says, buy truth and never sell it. Once we are given his word, the truth of his commandments in our heart, you do not compromise, you don't give it back. You never stop following Yeshua. You hold fast. Verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of a woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now listen to this. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, delusion. They're given over to delusion to do things which are not fitting. And actually read 2 Thessalonians because they don't want to retain the knowledge of God. God gives them over a delusion to believe the lie. This is frightening. Absolutely frightening. And this is the issue, again, with these, with these believers in Hebrews 6. They don't want to retain the knowledge of God. Well, what is that knowledge? Well, Hebrews 4, 6, we read this. My people... Now keep in mind, not pagans, not the heathen of the world. My people are destroyed for lack of Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being Cohen for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. There we go. I want to point out here, and this is imperative, to reject knowledge, knowledge is equated to the law of God. Okay, you, you got to understand this. So when, when we read in Romans and Paul's talking about believers, men, women, and the world who are rejecting the Lord, they don't want to retain the knowledge of God. What is that knowledge? That is the law of God. They don't want his law. This is, it's offensive. It inhibits their freedoms. They want nothing to do with it. And then this last statement, I also will forget your children. It's fascinating because Yeshua makes the same statement, although this is a euphemism compared to what Yeshua does. And to the church of Thyatira, he says, I will kill her children with death. I mean, this sounds a lot more pleasant, I will forget your children. Then Yeshua coming on the scene, I will kill your children with death. He's saying that this, they're both saying the same thing. Do you see how high the stakes are? You see why the Torah is important? Do you see why listening to the Lord, the voice of the Lord in his ways is critical? We need to remember the living God. 
Look at this warning, Deuteronomy 8.10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And listen to the warning. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today. Beware. Now, isn't it interesting? How many of you can attest to when things are going well in your life, that's when you feel very free to walk away from God. All of a sudden, your prayer life dwindles. The time you spend in the Word dwindles because you're filling your belly full of the things of the world. It's absolutely demonic. And we don't recognize it. We, it's a slow fade. As we go into love these things of the world, they slowly come in and the time, they just begin to consume us and consume us. And, con- and pretty soon, your whole heart is filled. It's a temple of idols of false gods. And the Lord God of Israel is nowhere to be found. Yeshua is nowhere to be found. This is, there's, a, there's a reason this warning's there. He's warning us about this. Now I want to drop back two chapters to Deuteronomy. And this is what we read. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies? The Ten Commandments is what it's saying. The statutes and the judgments, the Torah, which the Lord our God has commanded you. Absolutely one of the most pivotal aspects to the the answer to this question is fundamental to the faith. Fundamental to the faith. Our children, the Torah tells us, their children, when they come up to, it's, it's, it's prophesying, if you will. When your children come up to you and say, Dad, Mom, why did we do this? See, because they're going to notice their neighbors aren't doing it. They're going to notice other people aren't doing it. Why do we behave this way? Well, you know, why do we celebrate the feast? Why do we celebrate the resurrection of Yeshua? Why do we keep Shabbat? Why do we do all these things? They're going to ask why you do this thing. What is the answer to this? You need to pay very close attention. This is the answer. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Isn't that amazing? The answer, when your children come, why do you keep his commandments? Why do you keep the Torah? It's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace. The Lord delivered us out of Egypt. And if you remember the story, despite the Lord pounding his power upon Pharaoh, the children of Israel never left. It wasn't until the blood of the lamb was shed. When that lamb's blood was shed, all of a sudden, Israel was set free. The story of Pesach, which is coming upon us very soon. Such a powerful story. Why do we keep the commandments? Because of God's mercy, because of God's grace. Isn't it interesting? The exact opposite is being peddled today. That you're being told you're abandoning grace if you think you're going to go back to the law. That is diabolically evil. How is Satan getting away with this? No, we should be running to the Torah. Oh, because of what he did. This is the truth. This is where we need to be at. Not getting it. So this is all about deliverance. And so if you're going to understand anything, a fundamental principle of why we would keep the Torah, why we would keep God's commandments, understand It's all about what Yeshua, the price that was paid at Calvary. That's what it's about. Now, continuing on, verse 22. 
The Lord showed signs and wonders before eyes great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Now here's the thing. The first thing mentioned that we're supposed to respond to our children is grace. It's mercy. God has delivered us. We've been redeemed. So that's why we keep the commandments. But there's a part two. And here's part two. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So when our children come and say, why do we do this, mom and dad? Well, it's first because of the mercy of the living God and secondly, because God said so. He commanded us to keep these commandments. All things established on the testimony too. It's very simple. It's very beautiful. And yet the devil somehow snakes his way in there to deceive us and think that we can only accept the grace of God by abandoning his law. Demonic from the pit of hell. It's leading people right off a cliff. Going to Deuteronomy, let's continue down this vein. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, meaning the orphan, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Oh, but you shall remember, Zechor, remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Why are we commanded to remember the orphans and the widows? Because of grace. Why should I fulfill that? Because God showed me mercy. I should show mercy. We love him because he first loved us. The devil has flipped the argument up on its head. Absolutely demonic. The apostle Paul sends this warning in Galatians. Oh, hang on a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't want to blow by this. I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy 5. The Ten Commandments. There's a very special commandment listed there, and that is to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Here's what I love about this. We are told why we should keep it holy. Listen to the answer given right in the text. This is what we read. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Shabbat. Do you understand? Grace, because you were delivered, why am I keeping the Shabbat? Because he set me free. So when people are asking, why are you keeping, are you Jewish? You can say, you know, yeah, I'm Jewish in heart, but here's the thing, it's all about grace. The grace God has shown me, Scripture has commanded, if I receive the grace, which is the Lord Yeshua, I must keep the Sabbath. Okay? This is the reality that we keep seeing. But again, you know, the devil's flipped this up on its head. Oh, no, no, no. If you're, you're keeping the Sabbath, you're rejecting that beautiful grace message. You're not experiencing the power. You haven't experienced the power of Yeshua. So said the devil. This is the word of God. Do not forget it. You are not, we are to remember his word. It is to be in our heart, right? That I might not sin against him. It's fascinating to me 
I mean, I don't want to go too far into this, but it's fascinating today that if we are so adamant and we're so excited, and I know many of you, when you, when you just come into Torah, you go to share this with all your friends, and that is a mistake. <laughs> and it's not a mistake. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's actually you are doing what the Holy Spirit is driving you to do. You are doing what you should be doing, spreading light. But the one thing you realize is nobody cares. They, they don't, they, they're offended. Some people feel judged when you come to them. And it can fracture relationships. Some people think you're drinking Kool-Aid. Whatever the case may be. Because this is what the devil has taught them. Ravenhill has an amazing thought as he looked at what was happening to the church. He noticed something. And I have to share it with you because it's really an incredible statement. He says this, where there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. Don't tell me this guy wasn't anointed with the Holy Spirit. This guy was absolutely anointed from on high. And he was looking at the church and the things about it that they were casting off and saying it. And they, he knew that they were doing it simply by just waving this wand of, oh, that's legalistic. I don't want to be legalistic. I'm under grace. I want to embrace that grace fully. It's all delusion. It's absolutely delusional. The way you embrace the, the, the awesome grace of the Messiah Yeshua is by running to him, running to his word. Amen? You know, something has happened. Something's happened to the church. Something's happened to the way Christians think today. And it's not okay. The enemy's gotten into the camp. All right, I want to take you to Jeremiah 6. Here we go. To whom shall I speak and give warning? That they may hear, indeed their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Now, the reason I am showing you this passage is because it's, it, it's going to terrify us. In the context, when we see a generation, which we are living in today, that is offended when you go and you're excited to share the truth of the Torah, the truth of God's word, with everyone you know, and they're actually offended, we're in trouble. See, because the generation that the Lord destroyed, that he brought horrible, vile, wicked, other nations, Babylon, bringing them in, they were so vile, they were so evil, bringing them in on his own people whom he redeemed, whom he gave grace to. Why? Because his word was offensive. It was a reproach to them. They didn't delight in it. They delighted in the things of the world. They delighted to be like the nations around them. But they did not delight in the Lord. And that scares me. When, when I look at this, you become so degenerate that the commandments of God become offensive. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around that. Now I want to take you to Paul's warning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified... By Mashiach, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Mashiach, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. In other words, Paul's telling if you take the name of Yeshua, Jesus, upon your lips, a holy name that has brought salvation to the world, should you, should you, should you continue in your sin? Because if you continue in your sin, you make him not the Messiah of the righteous, you make him the Messiah of the wicked. 
That is blasphemy. And this is why Paul in Romans 2 calls it blasphemy. For Christians to take the holy name of Yeshua, but to walk like hell. Absolute blasphemy. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we, look at this, we're baptized into his death. Now, this is an amazing passage to me. After going through what we went through today, it'll stick out at you. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid we should not continue in it. But why? He reminds them why, because we were baptized into his death. What is the death and the resurrection of the Messiah? It's grace. It's mercy of God. Because of that, we don't continue in sin. In other words, we run back to the Torah. We run back to his commandments to honor him. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Mashiach depart from iniquity. So again, you take that holy name upon you. I can't continue in iniquity. What is sin? Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Right? I can't continue that way. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation. This is all about Yeshua. He's the grace of God that brings salvation. He has appeared to all men. And what does it do? Teaches us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, those who truly understand the grace of God, it teaches you to run to righteousness. This is what it teaches us. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope in Yeshua purifies himself just as he is pure. And so, <clears throat> as we look at these believers that are being described in Hebrews 6, that they've tasted the heavenly gift, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. Understand, these are believers, they've fallen away and they can't be renewed because... They have forgotten their God. They've abandoned the grace of God. They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They've forgotten what Yeshua had done for them. Now, in closing, we're going to finish off the writer's thoughts. We're going to get into the next verse, and it's tied in here. Verse 7, this is what we read. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. He gets metaphorical. He lays it out plain and clear in verses four through six. But then as he gets to seven, he uses the metaphor to, to help us understand what is being described. The earth are believers. This is representative of the believers. And it drinks in the rain. The rain is his blessing. It is the Ruach Kodesh. It's the Holy Spirit. This is the, the rain that comes down, that often comes, and it bears herbs useful for by the, whom it is cultivated. In other words, this has fallen on good ground. The Holy Spirit came upon these believers, and they produced fruit. But as we continue, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Again, another thought that you understand what the writer is conveying in regard to these who cannot be turned back they're in a perpetual state of sin. 
They're not bearing good fruit. They're bearing bad fruit. And what does Yeshua say in Matthew 5 or 7, 15? Beware of false prophets. Interesting. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You do not bear good fruit, you will become the enemy of God. Proverbs will close with this. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Amen.